Welcome to Every Dimension. This podcast is created for those buying and selling design. Our aim is to explore how to demand more from design and how to deliver it. As we all need to keep growing brands, when tomorrow's challenges and opportunities come in every dimension. Every Dimension is created by the Agency Path and hosted by me, a founder, Thomas Herman. Welcome to another episode of Every Dimension, Demand More From Design. This time, we are joined by Chris Forecast. Hello, Chris. Hello, Thomas. Chris is Creative Director and the Head of Sustainability here at PATH. He's been with us since 2008. Before that, he's worked for some other leading agencies, including Design Bridge, Drinkworks, Grey Matter and Hot House. His youthful energy hides it, but he is both a design veteran and a qualified teacher. And that comes through his passion of putting or pushing what design and designers can deliver and achieve today, but also mentoring the next generation for tomorrow. How's that sound, Chris? Sounds good. I yeah. believe people are everything, my friend. People are everything. <laughs> That's the future. We have to invest. Okay, Chris, like before we get into the questions... We always do a quick sort of uh, uh, warm up, A or B, either or. You ready for that? Yes. So first one is coffee or tea? Coffee. Easy. Cheese or chocolate? Cheese. Oh, lucky straight, straight, straight there. I love both, but cheese I just can't live without. Beer or wine? Beer on balance. I love wine, but I think I'll go beer. Mountains or beach? Mountains. I'm not a beach person. No. Okay. Here's we get a bit more tricky. Formula One or football? Hmm. Tough one. I think F1's in my bones. I've always been a motorsport man, but I obviously love football as well. But yeah, definitely F1. Yeah. And finally, for our listeners, listeners to visualise, tattoos or Converse? <laughs> you know, tattoos are a recent thing for me. I think Converse have been a lifelong passion. Uh, yeah, yeah. The brand and the, everything about it, as you know, I do have rather too many pairs. So I'd say Converse. You've got a large collection of Converse. I and have. A, and a growing collection of tattoos. Yeah, tattoos. <laughs> you have to count, catch up with the Converse. But I think I'm on 24 <laughs> pairs now. Good stuff. Anyway. Good, good stuff. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for that. Hopefully we're warmed up. Yeah. And then the, the next the, the next question we like to ask is sort of always insightful to kind of learn how people like really started out in there before their professional career, I guess. If you're if you're able to share, what was your very first kind of job that you might have sort of done for money or, or, or kind of done mm. for, for, uh, for Good fun of it, I guess? <laughs> Good question. Um, I was paid money. I think I my first proper job was at McDonald's. Okay, cool. And that was, uh, I was around 17, 18 yeah. when I was working yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, I did little bits and bobs before that, but nothing yeah. significant. That's my first proper sort of, full-time well through some holiday job nice did you get many stars i did a couple i remember the most memorable thing was cleaning the toilets with a toothbrush i've never i've always been very careful since i've been into mcdonald's now because i know someone's cleaning those tiles and the grout with a toothbrush and bleach wow that really happens that was a thing whether it's a thing now or not but it was certainly back in the 80s yeah (laughs) well there you go that says something about your work ethic chris (laughs) They just didn't and, like me. And your customer service skills. <laughs> Brilliant. 
Cool. So, so yeah, from your uh, from uh, starting out at McDonald's, you obviously moved on a lot since then. Can you give us a, an idea of how you got from there to to where you are now as a creative director? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, my journey through school was started one of woodwork and metalwork, I think, because I love making things, and that was the natural output then. I think I was always taking things apart, always making things. I remember playing with go-karts when I was about 12, 13, and I was the person that was always making them, trying to go faster, find new ways to fix the bolts, that kind of thing. So I've always been fascinated about how things work, I think, and that I wanted to, uh, that woodwork, metalwork gave me that, and that sort of morphed into design technology around that sort of time, mid-80s. This thing called design technology started to evolve, and that's what got me into design thinking which I then took forward into A-levels, into university. I went to Brunel University to study industrial design. You touched on the fact I'm a qualified teacher, which is a bit weird. I didn't talk about it at the beginning of my career because I felt I didn't want it to take away from my ambitions from the design perspective. But I did also, I did two degrees (laughs) because they used to have a teaching, well, I had a teaching course there. They used to, they don't now because that's kind of where the design course grew out from. So I decided to do both. I did an industrial design course, plus I did a teaching degree at the same time. So I did two degrees at once, which is a bit crazy. But it was passionate, really, because I I learned a lot about people and how to engage people. You know, when you're a spotty-faced 19, 20-year-old kid who looks about 12, because I always look quite young, teaching monstrously tall 16-year-old kids who could literally snap you in half, but trying to motivate them get them excited about something was really interesting. So yeah, I think it's kind of empowered me quite well moving forward. Um, yeah, so university then led me to graduating from Brunel and then getting my first job at Hot House. Initially before that, I was I did a little bit of work for Conran Associates. That's my first kind of full-time job. And then through, yeah, through my career, as you've touched on, really. I stayed in consultancy all the way through. I've kind of got, I find that smaller companies are where I fit best. Because I like to get involved in lots of things. I'm not just about the design component. I want to be involved in lots of elements of the business, uh, as you know. Um, but yeah, I guess it's always been in me, though. Looking back, I remember fixing my my. Uh, I, when I was about twelve, uh, I shared a bedroom space with my two sisters, and it was divided up by my dad, who put up partition walls because uh, we had a small house. And I had a louvre door, and I pinned up string and screws around it so I could open and close the door from my bed with bits of string <laughs> so I've always been a bit crazy like that I think yeah, yeah. anyway that was a question yeah yeah brilliant yeah thanks for that <laughs> and, and, and just might be useful for for listeners to kind of to think or understand how you go from you know design qualification obviously you can choose to study design and you know and hopefully get on the course you want but then ha- moving that into a career you know was that fairly straightforward uh you know you kind of studying at a time when design was becoming a bigger and bigger industry and maybe more people were studying it and maybe kind of agencies were growing was it was it easy to find your first job how, how do you go about that no i think it's as hard now as it was then i mean i studied industrial design since then we've kind of got a delineation between product design and industrial design it, yeah. that wasn't a thing when i studied but i graduated in 1990 yeah. So industrial design encompassed everything from a product perspective and industrial perspective. So kind of machinery through to hand kind of things you might use in your hand. So it was a very kind of wide uh, course. There was a lot of, lot of um, 
engineering component as well as a consumer component. But as you say, these were in the days before people were really talking about brand. I mean, brand was a thing, obviously, an established thing, but people didn't really understand it to the point where we could disseminate it. Strategy in terms of what we do now versus how we used to work was very different. It was more of a was definitely a pretty pretty pitch competition, you know, chuck a load of designs at a wall and get yeah. people to pick. But yeah, no, I think your question was about the difficulty of job. I I was lucky. I uh, we had a tutor join in my final year, well, second to final year, penultimate year called Paul Turnock, and he really engaged me in what design was. Up yeah. to then, it had been about making stuff, and then I I started to really realize that it was about the individual that you were designing for you're not creating things for yourself you're creating it for other people um so understanding what that person wants yeah. uh, and giving it to them is the essence of design thinking and that's what really opened my eyes back in that time and he was very well connected so he got me my first in, uh, interview at conran which where i got my first job yeah. and then he must have liked me actually because then he also got me the interview at uh hothouse which is where i really my career took off the three guys there and uh that. so yeah foot up yeah. the ladder that's what it's yeah. all about it's yeah. not about ne- it's not about nepotism it's about recognizing i hate to say this because it sounds immodest doesn't it but recognizing talent and supporting yeah. it and i think i'm so grateful to him and i want to yeah. do the same for other people yeah and that's yeah it's good it's a good uh lesson isn't it that you you've taken on yourself you know sort of noticing talent nurturing talent and giving them the opportunity and also if you are studying you know to to lean into the the opportunities and network that you know offered and you know engage with your tutors and you know engage with your network and yeah try and make make your own luck as you say yeah so yeah cool yeah cool well that's great it's good to understand you know um how you got to here right now so i thought people you know might be wondering why you know we've decided to talk to our own team today just as a note you know this podcast sort of mission is to is to help people that need design and people that do design understand each other and and communicate better so i thought you know it'd be insightful to hear from one of our own creative leaders about that kind of process but particularly the evolution of your role and responsibilities And, and i say that because you have been our creative director for many years now, but recently added the role of head of sustainability uh, to your title. So, yep. so, so I wondered whether you could kind of talk us through, you know, what creative directing is as a role, and then you know what head of sustainability means to you in addition to that, and then perhaps how the how the sort of roles have combined or how you're combining the roles. Right. Yeah. I'll start with that then. And I think the reality is it's probably different for different people. All creative directors, I think, take a slightly different approach. To how, but this, in essence, it's the same thing. You're directing the creative process. In essence, it's what it says on the tin. But what does that mean? You, it means you're not doing the job for that person, but you're helping that person be better by directing their thinking, by giving them inspiration, by pushing them in a certain direction that you think is right i think what's most important for me is simplifying reducing gears down so you have the core essence of the right solutions it's not about walking in with one solution but it's, it's also not about walking in with 20. i think that's where a more formed strategic process helped us i think that's where design struggled in the past because if it just becomes a very personal kind of decision on what is right and wrong 
somebody ultimately has to make that decision, but you need a bit of rigor to it. And the more, more rigor and thinking that's there, it helps you make that decision. Otherwise, it just becomes subjective. Now, there's always a bit of subjective decision making, obviously, but you need to make that based on experience. But what having proper strategic rigor has allowed us to do is to, to, to direct that thinking a bit more. So part of the job is to reduce and simplify and to make sure we're focused on the strategic vision we set at the beginning. So we have the right number of ideas that push our client as much as we feel that we can push them. We like to talk in terms of mild to wild, um, which is not revolution, but essentially means you have ideas that, um, that feel more comfortable to ideas that are slightly more challenging, but all deliverable. We don't want to propose ideas that people can't have. It's easy to get people excited and then disappointed because they can't deliver it. So an element of pragmatism in there uh, and just making sure we're hitting that narrative, really. But bottom line, I think it always tracks back. And this might sound a bit corny, but I want the team to be the best that they can be. I want to bring out the best version of them. Sounds a bit Ted Lasso, doesn't it? But and I think that's always what I wanted to do because I think you know, if you can help people grow and be better, that's amazing. So I think I always try to make it a consultive approach. I don't just walk in and say, let's do that. And that's what I mean. I think I'm at, you know, I've seen a lot of creative directors who literally just walk in and walk out and direct and just, you know, which is fine. It's just not my style. I want to hear what people in the room think. I want to have an opinion. I want to listen to that opinion. And I want to make a decision based on on all the information in front of me. Yeah. That's kind of my job, really, decision-making. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. And, and we have had some feedback from clients in the past that, you know, have been impressed by our approach and, and um, the pursuit of the the best idea, you know, regardless of where it comes from. And I think that's sort of credit to your creative direction in the business. You know, it's it's not, um, it's about curating and, 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 and guiding the, the creative processes and, and not necessarily ownership of an idea. It's about, you yeah. know, making sure that, that the we generate the right idea for the for the client brief so great um and so i know you've always thought sustainably and we've always mm. conversed sustainably about our work but recently you know you've you've added sustainability to your title you know, what does that mean to you and, and why did you feel that was you know, necessary um it's a little bit annoying to be honest with you it was necessary because it was become a bit of an arms race sustainability and visibility within it to show you how capability and understanding is important yeah. so i felt that we needed to have something visible out there from a linting perspective to say we understand the challenges so that's why i added it the annoyance comes from the fact that it should always be embedded into your thinking it should be baked into the way you think I mean, a bit of a macabre story. Some people would think it's a bit macabre, but my father was a minister. So I grew up in a church environment up to about the age of 14, 15, when I made my own choices. So I used to watch a lot of funerals and I, I, I just didn't understand the whole concept of burning a beautiful piece of oak. I understand the point of, I totally understood the point of valuing the person and their, and what they were to you. But why do you have to destroy a 400 year old magnificent tree to do that so i designed in my teens a cardboard coffin it seemed like a good solution you know but you could value it through print and you know experience and actually you could personalize it i mean i'm getting to wish i'd actually done something with it it's one of those ideas i constantly write down do nothing with because you can obviously buy loads of those now as people are starting to realize that actually yeah I was never convinced they actually burnt them anyway, to be honest, between you and me, but yeah. that's on the side. So 
it's always been baked into my thinking. And why yeah. wouldn't it be? Why yeah. would you design something that isn't more sustainable? Why would you use up natural resources in a way that's not replenishable? Yeah. Why would you live like that? It just makes no sense to me. So, of course, as a design professional, it should be embedded and baked into your thinking. Yeah. To, to be better, to be as good as you can be. I mean, I know there's always done it, but up until the last four or five years, it's not really ever been on a brief. We, you know, <laughs> we were always trying to push it in, but clients weren't interested because consumers weren't interested until, you know, Richard Attenborough started, David Attenborough, I was getting mixed up, David Attenborough started filming whales with plastic buckets. Um, yeah, yeah. And now suddenly we are all interested, rightly so. So yeah, I felt, I felt the need to get something out there. Um, yeah. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But it's always it's always been baked in, as you know. It's always been baked into how we think and how we try and introduce the best we can through our material selections, through our design thinking, through our minimizing uh, yeah. simplification, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's yeah. great. And, and it reminds me of you know, ten, twenty years ago when digital became a thing. You know, we all had to sort of shout out digital capabilities and you know, digital agencies and digital uh, heads of digital and so forth, and 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 yeah. then after time digital became everything everything's digital everything has a digital mm -hmm. element so you know we think digitally now so so it's become less relevant so i imagine in the future sustainability will be the same you know we need to call it out at the moment but yeah. the, the ambition is that you know everyone will think and act sustainably and, and, and build that in so yeah great cool we hope so yes <laughs> yeah good to understand that so so um obviously in your in your role of it's dual role or it's not a dual role it's you've combined it beautifully but you know in in, in those elements of driving and, 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 and directing creative and also making sure that our responses are as sustainable as possible i know you've you've built a, a number of tools and processes and um and you know sort of be tackling some of the sort of challenges and opportunities sort of in the in the kind of process so it'd be kind of cool to to um to to have a little think about those if, if possible mm -hmm. so when we when we think about you know work at path we say you know uh, we design better experiences and expressions to grow brands when tomorrow's challenges and opportunities come in every dimension um when we think about the challenge of sustainable design you know what do you think might be one of the biggest challenges to kind of to tackle and and, and, and how might you have been approaching it Oh, I mean, it's the first thing anyone ever says about sustainability is it's very complicated, isn't it? Yeah. In essence, what you're trying to do could be summed up in a quite simple way. Yeah. Um, you know, use less be and replenish resources yeah. uh, and reduce where you can. Uh, and a last resort, recycle it. Because obviously yeah. chucking stuff in in the in a river is not a good idea, is it? Yeah. So it's quite easy to say, but it's incredibly difficult to do because yeah. it's so complex, and our supply chains are so complex now. And you know, just in time manufacturing, which relies on you know really well managed shipping and distribution around the world, uh, is incredibly difficult to manage. So it's a it's a, it's a hard topic. So breaking things down, and there's lots of things you could answer to that question. I think my biggest challenge, and I would from a design perspective, the one I think we have to work on hardest is the narrative with consumers and the, the, the demonizing of materials, particularly demonizing of plastic. Plastic, in essence, again, small word that covers a lot of things, right? It's not a simple thing. It's not a switch off and on. It's revolutionized the way we live. You know, it's still a bit of an element of a high degree of flexibility and 
customization and simplicity of way of life that allows us to live how we want, right? You know, making sure that things can last two weeks, for instance, where they would last two days. You know, are we all, do we all want to go back to the point where we have to buy and use vegetables on a daily basis like our grandparents used to do? Okay, that would be an amazing ambition to get to. But I honestly, I always say you learn from the past, you can't live like the past. You know, we, we, we need to learn better ways from our grandparents in terms of how we, we get on to, I guess I could talk about, or I want to talk about reuse actually, but essentially live from, you know, learn from our, our grandparents learn from them rather but we we're not going to live like them we've opened genies out of the bottle now we want yeah. an easy way of life so we need to stop demonizing these materials that deliver this but but actually treat them in the way they need to be treated plastic yeah. is not a problem it's yeah. what we do with that plastic that's the problem yeah. and plastic itself is one of those pejorative terms that covers so many different things it's yeah. about choosing the right kind of plastic and then using that plastic in the right kind of way yeah that's what we need to get to now the problem with all things, though, is engaging with the consumer and getting them to understand, um, yep. to teach them the, the, what they need to know. Because at the moment, they've had very simplistic kind of view on plastic, and plastic is bad. So you constantly see people moving away from plastic into solutions that are actually worse. And the plastic bag versus paper bag debate that we all know, the people on the line might not know. I agree. We need to move away from a, a world where we we get a disposable plastic bag every time we go shopping and then chuck it away. Obviously that's totally wrong, but do we need to move to a place where we get a paper bag that you have to use six to eight times before it reaches the same sustainable footprint as the plastic bag? Right. Because no one's ever going to reuse a paper bag because you semiotically understand it as recyclable. It'll yeah. rip, it'll rip anyway. So it'll probably last you a couple of times if you try, but as soon as you get home, you're going to chuck it in the recycling because that's what you've been programmed to do. So, yeah, we've got to teach people to use to, that we're using the right materials in the right way in the right place, and that's yeah. that's what we've got, and that's that's taking people on the journey. You know, yeah. that's that's giving them the right information. I don't want to use education as a word because it's too prescriptive, but you know, like you teach children, it's about giving people empowerment with the right knowledge to make the right decisions, and that's what yeah. we need to do as brands. Sorry. Yeah, great, and and <clears throat> I know in part of that process, you've created something called MATLAB. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to tell us a bit about that and, and, and what that does? Yeah, I mean, it started life as a way for us to catalog materials that yeah. were on a sustainability journey because we're constantly picking up new and next materials. We're, you know, for instance, Notbla, which we picked up eight years ago, is now becoming fairly mainstream in terms of it was it won on the Duke of... Prince of Wales Award, I suppose it is now. Yeah, Last King year, Charles, no. was it King Charles Award? It's the King's yeah. Award, no, yeah. <laughs> so it's 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 coming, you know, it's becoming, and that's what happens, you know. Visibility, some materials win, some don't. Seaweed-based materials, you know, it's a great story, and that it's about tracking them and seeing what becomes mainstream and what doesn't. Now, sustainability isn't a switch; it's not on or off. It's again a massive word of lots of complexity, but in essence, to make it simple, it's about it's a journey of making things as good as they can be, yep. uh, and then constantly improving. So, you know, you're looking for it's a MATLAB allows us to track new materials, to give them a view, give us our view on sustainability and to track their improvement in relation to other things. Uh, and it's a great resource for us in terms of constantly growing. We're constantly populating it. We can cross reference because people are often being bought out by other people as well. And, yeah. you know, things grow. Yeah. And it's just really a database of great information on sustainable materials that we can apply to our thinking and our work.
Okay, gratuitous plug coming up. How might people access that, Chris? Do they email you and ask for a link? Well, they can ask for a link and then we'll <laughs> see if we want to share our... Uh, yeah, of course, we share yeah. it with, with some clients and they use it and access it for information. I mean, it's primarily a database for us. Um, we use it in all our design thinking. We apply it to our, um, our approach of conceptual thinking uh, and innovation. We use it in workshops as a resource, but clients often like to get in there because we like to keep examples in there of, of interesting things that are happening. It's not just about it, the materials underneath it, but how the material is being applied because yep. application is everything. Yeah. And like I said, it tracks back to the, the sustainability. It's using the right material in the right place in the right way. That's what yeah. we should be doing as designers. Yeah changing the narrative, not doing what consumers think they think is right and yep. going, oh, let's do this because we've learned in a focus group that consumers think paper is more sustainable. Well, of course they do because we've been telling them for the past 30 years it's, more, it's sustainable. Yep. Trees are a finite resource. You know, yep. We've got more trees now than we had in 2019, but we've got fewer forests. And what do I mean by that? That's everything. Forests suck carbon like you, you can't imagine. Right. They're engines for carbon sequestration. Yep. And we're chopping them down at an alarming rate. And people think, well, that's all right. We plant some more trees. We haven't because a forest functions differently to a load of trees. It takes such a long, it takes 10 years or so for a tree to become a proper sequesterer. And they do it better in density with all the undergrowth and all the, and the biodiversity. So a, a forest that's been established for a thousand years is way better than a load of trees you just planted in Scotland. Mm -hmm. So you don't solve the problem by planting trees, not straight away. Trees are the finite resource. You know, we need to think about paper in a way that isn't solving all our problems. And that's what I've come back to the right material, the right place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, I've just thought we should, uh, maybe we should change your title, actually. Not head of sustainability. It should be head full of sustainability. <laughs> it's all in there, isn't it? I can see. <laughs> good stuff. Well, yeah, thanks for telling us about yeah. that. And it's good to, yeah, good to think of I mean, There's many challenges, but obviously materials are, are a lot of where the conversations start. And MATLAB is a great resource and we'll put yeah. a link into that in the show notes so yeah if people want to get in touch with you about that that's really cool and then we've spoken about this a number of times in the past but when we think about opportunities you know for for sustainability you know we often we talk about a number of things but we often talk about you know the, the four r's of of, of of waste um management you know trying to avoid landfill you know but going back up the stream you know trying to recover it either recycle it reuse it or, you know, ideally reduce our kind of resource. When we think about, you know, next steps or goals for sustainability, where, where do you think we should play on that kind of spectrum? Hmm. I think there's another one in there now, which is replenish for me, because, right. uh, which is embedded into reuse, because we've been talking circular, circularly, circularity for a long time, rightly so, Ellen MacArthur driving a visible agenda, right? And driven by the fact that you're seeing a load of plastic in the ocean and you need to get it out. Amazing. And the fact that that's now become, you know, almost mainstream knowledge is what it's all about. You need people on the high street to understand this stuff. It's more than circularity because ultimately it's key to the process. You know, I've used a plastic bottle. That plastic bottle can make another plastic bottle. And if we work with the plastic chemistry, we can, in, we can recycle that infinitely. You know, it's not in the interests of the petroleum industry to make recycling plastic re infinitely recyclable because obviously they've, you know, they've got all this waste material they're trying to use. But again, people don't realize that plastic, we don't drill oil to produce plastic. Plastic is a waste commodity. 
from the petrochemicals industry. So essentially, we were drilling oil to put fully on our cars and to make high value petrochemicals. Um, we had this stuff left over. And then some clever chemist went, oh, I can do something with that and invented polyethylene. And the rest is history. So plastic in itself is a waste material, but it's become the vis most visible sign of human um, neglect yeah. in terms of the the oceans of it, the, the, the islands of it floating in the ocean. Yeah. But I don't see, I don't view that as a major issue because we can fish that stuff out, and we could, we're developing technology that literally within ten years, I reckon it'll be gone. But seventy odd percent of the microplastics in the sea actually come from tires. Right roadwear yeah. uh, and cosmetics and fibers from clothing through washing you know yeah. these are things we need to be addressing this yeah. is not coming from plastic bottles because plastic bottles take hundreds of thousand years to break down to that point yeah. so i'm i'm so circularity is important but yeah. actually it's more than that now it's about reinvesting and replenishing it's about making sure that we put back more than we take out yeah so I think our circularity is more is growing. It's more helical, really, if you think yeah. about it, because you've yeah. got to go circular. You've got to put back things you've used, obviously, yeah. but we need to be regenerating, replenishing and reusing. I think that's the essence of the way we need to be thinking. So I think reuse, as I said before, for me, is the key mantra from a design perspective. And that's not just about, oh, I've designed an LEP, a limited edition pack for duty free, and people can now use that metal tin to put pens in. Okay, yeah. that's pretty clunky, but that's yeah. reuse. It's yeah. more than that. It's about reusing the kind of item and the material in in more intelligent ways. Um, yeah. And circularity is part of that, but not just all of it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think when you think about the the theory of it, you know, lots of conversations we've had in and around this podcast sort of talk about, you know, recycling is a kind of is a kind of process that the consumers starting to understand you know it's it's kind of it's kind of um a, a concept which people can get get their heads around and it and it and it's useful to kind of get people to to be thinking about that kind of process but actually what recycling does is is sort of allows business as usual to a point you know that allows this kind of fmcg world to keep creating products in a similar way just as long as they can be captured and recycled and turned back into yep. those original products and when we actually start to think about the next step up the four hours of reuse and as mm -hmm. you mentioned you know not secondary use it's not you know this packaging turns into something else it goes back into the system as its original you know purpose you know it's, it, it goes back into the system to be what it was made for and it stays in its original form when when we force ourselves to think about reuse it, it means you have to start thinking about business models changing which is which is the scary thing for for corporations but is actually probably the thing that's going to make the biggest impact to our to our environmental you know uh, footprint so yeah it's quite it's quite an interesting one to to start thinking about that more and more seriously and, and, and i'm sure you and i in the business when we get the opportunities will be encouraging you know to, to look at reuse you know beyond recycling i think so and i mean technology is always evolving and our attitudes to recycling are changing you know we can break materials down to their core molecular composition now yep. whereas previously a pt bottle could only be a pt bottle mm. right and Coca-Cola are doing good things to raise the value of that commodity because yeah. there's no financial reason to recycle PET because you can make it cheaper from the waste material of the petrochemical industry, yeah. um, as we've established. But 
actually to get it out of the environment, you need to engage with consumers to do that for you. And that's empowering the information that actually this can become a new bottle. It has value. It can live again. Yes. So they're, they're, they're driving the industry towards making that material, giving that material value as a commodity. Yes. Therefore, it will be reprocessed in the way that aluminium's done. But yes. aluminium is cheaper to recycle than to smash it out of rocks because yes. it all comes from rock. I think yeah. people have this imagination that aluminium is like a seam of gold yeah, yeah, that yeah. runs through the earth and you go into a mine and chop it out. You don't. You smash rocks up and yeah. powder them down using huge amounts of energy and heat to, yeah. to, to, and lots of waste, as you can imagine, to get to the core essence of the, of the, of the yeah. material, which you then melt and produce aluminium. Yeah. That's not a great process. So it's better to recycle it once it's been made. Yeah. So there's a huge recycling industry around aluminium because it yeah. suits the industry. But until the industry needs another reason, a momentum yeah. shift yeah they won't do it because it's capitalism obviously about making money yeah and coca-cola realized that there's great merit in being perceived as the doing the right thing yeah i mean doesn't help that they are like the number one polluter in, in the world uh in terms of plastic waste so they've they've got to sort their uh their yeah. house out but yeah. I think that's it. We've got to re we've got to reimagine our our perceptions and attitudes towards what we call waste. It's not yeah. waste, it's a resource. Yeah. It's something we can use again and reuse again. And I think that's expanding that idea of reuse, which historically has just been about you know, oh, I bought some stuff in a mug, I can now drink out of the mug. That's where yeah. the thinking's been. It's actually how can I reuse that yeah. in more intelligent ways? And yeah, the technology yeah. allows us to do that. But I think yeah. the nice element there. Technology is not the answer. It's not the only answer. We're not going to solve this just with technology. We have to engage the hearts and minds of the consumers so they understand why we're doing it. Because yeah. if they don't support it, if they don't do the right things that we're asking them to do, yeah. and we don't back that up with the right legislation and government control, then yeah. we haven't got a hope. Yeah. So yeah. You've, got to, you've, got to, you've, got to, you've got to engage with um, that, that side of the debate as much as yeah. the technology debate. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. I'm just going to um, sum up that conversation and try and put a bow on it before we uh, move into the um, to the, the final part of the the conversation. And I and I, at the time of recording, you know, I think there are lots of potential regulation changes coming in to kind of to to help persuade brands to invest in recycled materials or managing their 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 waste or uh, moving towards reuse and we're not quite sure how those uh, regulations are going to play out yet but if the potential is if those regulations are right and they do persuade brands to 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 move to more sustainable I'm doing air quotes operations brands are are the vehicle that are going to change consumer perception that's that's the exciting thing you know if you ever want to change consumer perception brands are the, are the ones that can inspire consumers to to change and drive that kind of desire so that's i think the positive thing brands will naturally do what they need to do to be commercially viable within the current regulations and if if the regulations move in the right direction then um i think you know there's every chance that we can persuade brands can persuade you know consumers to to uh, act in the right way yep cool well great conversation chris thanks very much <laughs> we've come towards the end so uh at the back end of this podcast we always like to ask our kind of killer question which is um which is uh, if you could demand designers deliver you a solution to any problem and anything is possible it's literally a magic wand which problem would you choose to solve oh crikey 
I would I, I would track back to the reuse element. And I think, as I said, we're in a privileged position and I've just seen too many people waste that privilege. We can make a difference, right? We've got an opportunity to, to be better. And that's what we try to do. Uh, that sounds really worthy. I'm not preaching, but I think it is. It's, you know, we, we're, we're partly responsible for the, for the crap that's floating through the rivers, you know? I remember the first time I saw the Powerade Bowl I worked on floating down the Thames and it was a really sad moment because, you know, that, that, that should not be happening because of the cultural shift. So I think embedding and rethinking waste as a resource, not 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 as waste and making sure that we we embed reuse and reuse thinking into into everything we do yeah. to apply the right material at the right time in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's a good point, isn't it? Because you know, we worry about current consumer culture, but that is something we have learned, isn't it? And that's something that, you know, we've kind of been learned behavior. We need um, to relearn that behavior. Yeah. So, so if you could wave a magic wand and people could relearn, you know, a, a different philosophy to, to, uh, I think I, I don't mean just live like my grandparents, you know, who, who were in the war and understood about thriftiness and used to shop locally and used to buy and cook vegetables every day. You can't live like that because my wife, yeah. my, my grandmother was a housewife and that's was what she did. And yeah. I know people do that, but people have got much more diverse lives now. Yeah. So it's difficult to shop like that. So you need, yeah. but we need to learn to live more like that yeah. in terms of the appreciation. She had one vacuum cleaner her whole life. Yeah. You know, designed obsolescence is what I learned at college. Yeah. And that essentially is what has driven the last 50 years worth of waste and, and lack of respect. Yeah. How can you possibly embed in the design process, a desire for something to break within a yeah. set period of time so that someone yeah. has to buy a new one? Yeah. That is so wrong. Yeah. We need to rethink that and then yeah. find a way that we can make money out of the alternative, which is reuse. Yeah. Anyway. Exactly. No, that's perfect. And I think that's why this podcast is called, you know, every dimension demand more from design because, because, you know, if we, demand more you know we demand that we design things that are you know everlasting and the value the value equation is created in another way absolutely we, we different de decouple the link between value and material and move product to services or some other way you know that we we, we you know business needs to exist and drive value but if we could decouple that from you know material and resources then that would be a great problem solved. Would great, thanks, ambition. Chris. Cool. So, last couple of questions are just: uh, Have you got a particular kind of um, motto or mantra? And then, lastly, after that, you know, what are you kind of listening to or reading, or what might you recommend our kind of listeners um, check out next? Interesting questions. I think there's a couple of things that I, I kind of live my life by. One, some um, personal perspective, I try to teach my daughter. And that's kind of the Tom Edison approach to life, you know, about 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. That's not to say that inspiration isn't vital, you know, yeah. because without it, you have nothing, right? And that's that spark of genius moment that hopefully that designer or whoever that comes up with it, because the design can come from anywhere, yeah. right? That spark, but the rest of it is art graft. Yes. And that's life. You don't get You don't get to being really good at something without hard work. And that's my, you know, I, I think I'll always invest in people who understand that. And I learned that at school. I was a, a woodwork teacher when I was about 14, 13. I was rubbing a piece of wood down and he came over and he, he reached in his pocket and pulled out some dust and sprinkled on it. He said, now rub that in harder, harder. That's it. And he said, you know what that is? That's elbow grease. 
Yeah. That's how you get a piece of wood looking good, hard yeah. work. That's that's everything for me. So that idea of perspiration. But I think from a design perspective, Dieter Rams has always been my kind of go-to start point. Yeah. I mean, he was talking about sustainability when, like Prince Charles was, when no one really understood it, right? Yep. Instrumental in terms of driving the form follows function uh, thinking in relation to design. But obviously the likes of Johnny Ives and stuff have then just kind of moved forward. And I, I like to live by that. That's not about making things unemotional. It's about reducing things down to the purest essence of the idea. I think I've grown on that because in the hands of someone who's not as good at it, form follows function can be a bit boring. You know, yeah. it's the, 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 vis the visible side of an object is, is a result of the for the function of it. And like going back to where I started this talk, the inside of everything is yeah. what's excited me and yeah. good product design starts from the inside out, not from the yeah. outside in. Yeah. So form follows function is everything, but actually, you know, when the likes of, you know, um, Esslinger at Frog started to layer on a further element of, onto that, which was about emotion, yeah. form follows emotion. To understand the, the emotional components key as well but yeah. that's the essence of where i come from from a design perspective is 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 that it's about yeah. you know removing the superfluous reducing to the to the essence of the idea and making sure that delivers you know uh enjoyment and pleasure as much as uh, well because pleasure comes out of experience as well as much yeah. as it does out of visible yeah um, so there's a couple of answers there if you ask me about then, what, then... reading Oh, what what would you recommend uh, to our listeners next? What should they go watch or read, or what have you enjoyed? I'll be honest with you, I always feel a bit guilty saying this. I'm not a big reader. I never have been. Yeah. I just find the words a bit too much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a really a visual person. Yeah, I can do it, but I just you know I get bored really quickly. I'm you know I'm very I'm I'm, I'm pretty picture. Oh, look at that. So. I, when I was a kid, I used to love Asterix and Obelix because I just loved the kind of the whole cartoon thing. And it was imagination built in. But I'm a big movie buff. Yeah, I love I love films um, of all genres. But I think sci-fi is kind of one of my key ones. I love the imagination. I love the technology behind it, which is part yeah. of the reason I love F1. So technology yeah. and pushing for perfection and all that. Yeah. I think top five films, I would say from a design perspective, Blade Runner. Yeah groundbreaking film obviously when it was made yeah. by Ridley Scott and I think it's one of the first films that really embedded design into the emotion and to the enjoyment of the film yeah, down yeah. to the point where the glasses were beautifully designed and the, everything worked and we, you know it, it kicked off a whole genre really people realized those sort of details were so important yeah and I think if any product designer or designer hasn't seen Blade Runner I question their uh, <laughs> yeah. love so there, of subjects <laughs> there you go yeah this is note to self all yeah. all uh it definitely inspired a generation of uh of uh designers and yeah Absolutely. anyone that hasn't watched it check it out because it's yeah. uh it's worth seeing and then maybe even the uh sequel which is quite an interesting uh, uh yeah update so yeah yeah cool yeah. man great yeah it's something that all uh all designers should check out Cool. Well, that's great to have a conversation with you, Chris, in this kind of format and uh, kind of uh, dig into, you know, your kind of experience and approach. And hopefully that's kind of been useful for for um, for people to put, you know, um, your role and, and some of the way we work in perspective. So um, thanks so much for your, for your time. You have been listening to Every Dimension, brought to you by Path. Join in the conversation on LinkedIn using the hashtag Every Dimension or on Instagram at We Are Path.
For more information on how we design brands better in every dimension, please visit wearepath.com forward slash every dimension. Here you'll find all our other podcasts and 20 years of experience helping brands diagnose opportunities and challenges, then designing identity, experience and innovation to deliver on them. This podcast is created and produced by Path. If you have enjoyed this podcast, why not leave us a review on Spotify or iTunes? Thank you.